It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because This Might Get Uncomfortable starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. One thing that I've been meditating on a lot lately is the ability for uh, the human spirit to survive a lot of really horrific things in life. Uh, I think that during this recent time of COVID and quarantine and perhaps having just a lot of time at home to sit with my own thoughts and also co-host this podcast with Whitney here on This Might Get Uncomfortable, we just have gone really deep into ruminating on a lot of subjects that are super challenging and confronting, which hence the name of this podcast. We like to get uncomfortable. We like to dive into things that are scary and weird and uncomfortable and bizarre and maybe things that we don't have answers for. And quite often we don't have answers for. And in this rumination period, this meditation on all the things that we're able to survive, especially during this incredibly challenging, confusing time with so many questions and so few answers, it's been a wonderful opportunity to, I guess, get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And in that regard, I think one of the most uncomfortable things we can experience is when things happen to our bodies that we don't understand. I'm actually currently in this moment of this recording going through a really bizarre health challenge with my foot. I haven't been able to quite figure it out yet and been going for x-rays and CT scans and therapy visits. And and I haven't had a, a really clear answer as to what's happening with my body. And I think it's a good way to open this episode in terms of of when things are happening that we don't quite understand or things are happening that we want to get answers for, or get control over, or have some certainty. Certainly throwing this your way, Chris, you know, your your story when we were introduced to you, man, and, and introduced to who you are. I mean, I remember Whitney and I, when we first learned about you, we were like, we got to get this guy on the podcast. And so, you know, we're just really, really grateful to have this deep conversation with you and, and talk about your experience with dealing with scary things and horrific things, specifically, you know, things that we can't control. And your story is just so wonderful and, and just want to dive right into it in terms of, you know, your story and, and battling what you've battled in your life. So, Yeah. Also, you have a really great sense of humor. I, I literally <laughs> laughed out loud when I was reading your bio. Was it Coma Man? He transformed oh. into Coma Man? Because that was the first giggle I had. Chris was like, I transformed into Coma Man. That might have been that. <laughs> <laughs> a very subtle transformation. <laughs> well, first of all, it was no, there was a comment about Legos, and I forget what it was. Maybe you remember it's because it's on your website somewhere. You made some little side note about Legos that made me really laugh. And then I also was, you don't remember either? I have to look it up. I make so many stupid comments that it's hard for me to keep track of them all. Okay, well, I'll look it up while we're chatting to see what I can find because I remember just reading it over and I just love, I like kind of silly sense of humor and joke that bring me a lot of joy. And I'm also excited for you to talk more about Star Wars, too, because you and Jason really have that in common. And that's come up actually a number of times on our podcast. So we have to weave that into this conversation, too. Okay, will do. So one of the first things that I cracked up at, and and I suppose this will paint a really good picture, Chris, as as you get into 
your story and piggybacking on what we're talking about is uh, <laughs> when you said that you started to look like a mixture of Walter White and a discount Deadpool, not just Deadpool. Oh, you had yeah. to say discount Deadpool. <laughs> and so, yeah, please tell us a little bit more because I feel like that's a good jump off point visually for people. <laughs> Certainly. Well, for the Walter White part, I am bald and I have a goatee and I sometimes have one of those faces that naturally frown. So... If, like what some if, people call a resting bitch face. Yes. But for yes. guys, is there is there a term like because do men uh, use that maybe, term as well or just women? Maybe an R J F riching jerk face. Resting jerk. Resting, resting jerk, jerk face. face. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I have that look upon me, and then when I, when I put my glasses on, that really helps. But w- then I have the pork pie hat, and that really seals the deal. For Deadpool. I'm thinking that, well, not all of me is scarred. And if you know anything about Deadpool, is that he is constantly ravaged by cancer. And his healing factor is keeping the cancer at bay. So I only have about 30% of my body that looks like that. Maybe one fit, like maybe 20 to 30%. I really haven't measured out my exact skin and divided that by the amount that is skin graft, so I can't be exact on the percentage. But it's still not 100%, so I have to be a discount. So that's where it comes from. And plus, I always try to draw some kind of connection between myself and comics, because I am a major geek, as you have alluded to. Well, we love that about you. I think that Jason and I each consider ourselves geeks in our own way, and Reflecting back, maybe it was a, an episode of yours that I listened to where, when you made a comment about Legos, because I, I was just trying to find it on your website. So it'll it'll be a little treasure hunt for the listener if they go listen to your, your podcast and hear about all of your interesting stories here. I actually love when I clicked on your podcast, it's called Scar Bearers, but it's written in a Star Wars font. Yes. And I looked it up. I will not get sued by Disney because it is free available on the internet. I saw a bunch of other people using it. So Disney is going to have to go after those people first because I am not the trailblazer here, but yes, I thought that by using that type of font, it will show people, wow, this guy is really geeky and I can't avoid it. Whenever I do my podcasts behind me is poster of an old school Iron Man comic book cover coupled with a picture of the Ninja Turtles with Michelangelo holding hands with Deadpool. <laughs> so, wow. Oh, man. Wow. I'm kind of guessing that you like going to Comic-Con as well, or is that too much of a stereotype? You're basically right on. But I've never been to San Diego Comic-Con. However, I have made it to the Salt Lake Comic Con, which is now called Fan X. Okay. I've been there on two occasions. The first occasion, I met Stan Lee. And yeah. I was dressed up as my brother-in-law's character. Uh, he, from his uh, novel series, Fail State, my brother-in-law is a pastor. And he's also a speculative Christian science fiction writer. 
and he created this character named Failstate, who is a teenage superhero. That's so and, cool. Yes. And he uh, wears a black hoodie. And because his face is disfigured, he wears like black mesh over his face. And then camel pants, like black and gray camel pants. And then camel, like uh, army boots. And then black gloves. So there's a picture of me holding my thumb up next to Stan Lee. And then the next time. Send us that photo so we can put that in the show notes for people to see. Or is it on your website somewhere? That one is not. The picture of me dressed as Battle Scars Wolverine <laughs> sitting next to uh, Mark Hamill is, though. Wow. Gosh, you have some great stories. Actually, Jason and I went to Comic-Con one time in San Diego, mm-hmm. and it was so insane. The other part of it that kind of blew my mind in hindsight is, Jason, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't we like go under, why am I blanking yeah, on Yeah, Matt Gronick. Yes, we went under oh, like, really? his, his, uh, like his, not team, but like his company or something like we had to use like fake badges to get in, but it was, wasn't it under Matt's team or like, do you remember the details of that? Really quick backstory. So I became acquaintances with his, it was his girlfriend at the time. who's now his wife, Augustina and was doing some work with her health coaching and stuff like that. And she would randomly start to invite me to like, for instance, the hundredth episode party for The Simpsons, or the, not the not the hundredth, rather. It was was three hundredth, five hundredth. I can't even remember. She would randomly invite me to stuff. So one year she's like, and she has she has one of the most adorable acts. She's like, Jason, I have these extra passes. Do you want them? And I was like, Yeah, I'll <laughs> take the extra passes. So on the sly, Matt's wife Augustina would just kind of throw me some passes to some cool events sometimes. So. I think we did, Whitney, have different names on our badges. I don't think it was our names. I think I was someone else completely. But yeah, I mean, Chris, that experience was like, I had been to smaller Comic Cons in the past, like Detroit, Chicago, but this was, my God, the number of people, the number of booths, the number of panels, it was like, (laughs) by the end of the day, we were wiped out. We were eating Mexican food and we're just like, oh my God, that was crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And it's cool because at the time, the entire city was kind of taken over by this event. And it's just like tons of people. And there was all these exhibits set up. Like I remember they had one for The Walking Dead and they took over like a ballpark or something, I think. Okay. And then they had one for um, Ender's Game. They had a huge exhibit for Ender's Game when that came out. I just remember it it was just like so incredible but you know what's interesting is i wonder what events like that will be like moving forward because will we ever have an experience where we're that close to people again it feels like too far-fetched to believe we will never have that experience again but i'm just kind of curious how long it'll take us to start to gather with as many people all in one place what do you guys think it will probably be maybe a couple years, but you know, once science catches up to the issue and we have you know some kind of vaccine, we will get back to that. You know, it may not be exactly like that, but if you look historically, you know, at the nineteen eighteen pandemic, they were able to get back and they're they were roaring in the twenties a couple years later. So you know, we just got to let science work its, you know, do its course and uh, 
you know, hopefully people will be smart and do what they need to do to let science figure it out. And we'll be good, uh, good to get our geek on and mass quantities. <laughs> now, now that song's in my head. Get your geek on. Uh, get your geek on. Yeah. I feel like that's such a, a wonderful loop back, Chris, to the beginning of this conversation, because I'm sure some of the listeners are probably like, why? what's with the Deadpool conversation and the superhero talk? I feel like we've teased it, but you bringing up science, I think an interesting way to kind of give the listeners more background as to what we're referring to and what we're teasing them about. So you're the first person, Chris, that I've ever had the pleasure of connecting with. You know, I heard of bacterial infections doing, you know, major damage on people's bodies and flesh-eating bacteria. You're the first person, spoiler alert, that I we've ever had the chance to really talk about who has survived and thrived through this. So will you give us, obviously, people can go to your website, which we will link to in the show notes to get your entire backstory, but my goodness, necrotizing fasciitis, is that correct? Is that the scientific term for what you experienced? Give that man a cupid doll. Yes, that is it. Some people struggle with saying Necrotizing it. fasciitis. Yes. So th- this was literally flesh-eating bacteria. Okay, yes. so I'm just going to let you take it from here because my mind is already like, whoa. All right. So in March 2015, I was helping my wife get our three kids into the van so she could take them to their respective places. My oldest son was going to kindergarten and our twins were going to daycare. And my wife is a high school teacher here in town. And so she drops them off and I stay at home and teach online. I am a middle school uh, special education teacher for an online school. And so I was flying my younger son, Seth, to the garage and we're going back and forth flying like you do with a two-year-old. My hand got too close to the garage wall, my right hand did, and I scraped my hand on the garage wall. Well, I didn't think anything of it. I put Seth in the car seat, I kissed everyone goodbye, and then went inside the house, cleaned up my hand like I usually do, and then I went about my day. Well, three days later, I wake up. And I have a huge bump on my elbow. It's about the size of a lacrosse ball. And my wife and I discuss it and say, all right, I'll go into the walk-in clinic here in town. And by discussing, I say, I'm going to go to the walk-in clinic. And she said, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I go to the walk-in clinic and and the doctor, the attending doctor looks at it and says, well, looks like could be bursitis. Why don't you go home and keep an eye on it and let us know if anything happens? Well, about 10 hours later, my right arm had ballooned up to triple the size of my left. Oh, my God. The bump had grown to encompass my right arm and forearm, my right upper arm, the shoulder, and was starting to work into the chest and back. If you can picture it, I look like the Incredible Hulk in mid-transformation. So at this time, it's my wife who says, we're taking you to the emergency room. And I say, I wasn't feeling very good. So she drives me to the emergency room. They admit me and they immediately started freaking out because my blood pressure had gone, to use a technical term, wonky. 
They couldn't get a good blood pressure reading on me because I had gone into sepsis. What does that mean? What is sepsis? Sepsis is, in layman's terms, it's a, an overreaction of your body to an infection. And it pumps a, a chemical into your bloodstream to fight the infection. But it's almost like it helps you by almost killing you. And people actually die of sepsis. It's basically like poisoning you, but in an, in an effort to kill the infection. And so I had gone septic and the infection had uh, thrown off my blood pressure and had had me really feeling weird, I guess is the best way to put it. So they kept me overnight. And in the morning, the attending doctor at, at, doctor at that point had come up to me and said, Mr. Gordon, this is beyond us. Whoa. We can do nothing more for you. <laughs> what? How did you feel on that? What's your reaction when a doctor says that to you? Well, first, I'm full of confidence. And I say, okay, I'll take my medical situation to my own hands. And then I say, send me to Mayo Clinic. Those of you who don't know, the Mayo Clinic is nationally no world renowned and is only two hours away from my house. So they uh, load me up into an ambulance and take me to the municipal airport and literally strap me to the inside of the airplane because I'm in a gurney. So they basically have me latched onto the side of the cabin and they take off and fly me to Rochester. Meanwhile, my wife is loading up the kids and driving on Highway 14 going east, heading to Rochester. And there are two reasons why I said the Mayo Clinic was the place I wanted to go. First was, well, it's the Mayo Clinic. And, you know, you don't send yourself anywhere else if you can pick. It's just world renowned. Secondly, my in-laws live in Rochester. So I knew that my family would have a place to stay for the, I'm sure, no more than two or three days this would take to resolve. Uh, spoiler alert, it did not take two or three days to resolve. <laughs> That's what I was <laughs> waiting for. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, wow. I mean, yeah. here's the thing to pause you for a second, Chris. Like As you're telling this, I'm thinking of all of the times in my life where something seemingly minor happened and I thought, eh, I'll just wait it out. Like, I'll just see. Like, it's probably fine. And it reminds me of two things in particular. One was <laughs> when, and I feel really lucky now as you're telling this story. And again, even like pausing you for a second, I'm sure the listener is also reflecting on their medical experiences. For me, what came up was that when I was traveling in Greece, I got scratched by a, a cat. <laughs> there are a lot of like stray cats in Greece and one scratched mm -hmm. me and I had this moment thinking, should I go to the hospital for this? You know, and I look it up and I'm trying to find all the details and I made the decision not to go and I was fine. But like hearing your story, I'm thinking, well, there's bacteria from cat claws, especially one you don't know that's like walking around like a foreign country. And I feel so lucky that it completely healed and nothing happened. And then it also reminds me of your story, Jason, when we were in New York City a few years ago 
and you had what turned out to be gout. But I remember at the time when the pain first started, you were walking on it just thinking that what, like, I, I don't know exactly what you thought, but you didn't think it was that big of a deal. And then next thing you know, you're going to the hospital and now you're still dealing with it all this time yeah, later. Years later. It was one of those things. I guess, sort of innocuous, like Chris, you were alluding to, you know, scraping or even you, Whitney, a, a cat scratcher, scraping yourself on the inside of your garage wall. It, it seems innocuous and, and innocent enough, I suppose. But my initial foot situation that I'm still dealing with to, to this day, as I, I spoke of in the beginning, I thought I had just scraped it on coral. I was going uh, snorkeling in Hawaii and I, I scraped mm. my foot kind of bad on some coral. And of course, Google can be great or Google can feed your fears, depending how you interpret the information. So I'm Googling bacterial infections from coral and like, oh, my God, people losing their foot and surfers having to have amputations. And of course, my mind's going to the worst possible scenario. But, you know, your situation is like it actually was pretty much the worst possible scenario. So by all means, continue the story. So so you're, you're at the Mayo Clinic, your family arrives in Rochester with your in-laws. And then what happens when you arrive at the Mayo Clinic? So they get me in, they admit me to the Mayo Clinic, and the doctors quickly diagnose me with necrotizing fasciitis and decide that they need to operate right away. So they get me on the fast track to operation, and before they do, they start giving me painkillers. And this is where the... Do you remember in Doctor Strange where Stephen gets sent on the magical mystery tour by the ancient oh, yeah. one. Yeah, that was like it was okay. like a psychedelic drug trip. <laughs> yeah. I do yeah. not have imagine, any reference for this, so you might need to paint a picture for those of us who haven't seen it. Just imagine being on a uh, crazy acid trip in the convenience of your own wheelchair. <laughs> Sounds kind of cool, actually. Yeah. <laughs> My head's starting to list back and forth, and... The doctor sent me down and he's going through this speech. I'm sure he's given more than once about what's going going to happen. And I'm sure he's ready for me to start crying, to start being scared. I do my best to flip that. Not intentionally, but I am someone who, if you give me the facts, you tell me how it is, I'm going to take it and do my best. So with my head listing back and forth, my eyes barely open, I say something to the effect of, all right, let's do this. It's really funny to see a surgeon subtly freak out because his reaction was one of subtle surprise because he was not used to people reacting that way. But I was thinking subconsciously, well, if I'm going to die... Let's not, I have nothing else to do than the surgery. And if I want to live, I should be a cheerleader for it. Wow. Yes. Wow. So I'm like, all right, let's do this. And that's the last thing I remember for five days. They like had you, me in, to this day, you don't even know what happened in those five days? Like aside no, from what I was told in, you. I was in a coma. They had put me in a coma because they had a number of debridement surgeries and skin graft harvesting surgeries. And basically, they had to, in a sense, fillet me. They had to remove the infected skin and then cover that up 
And then uh, during the second surgery, they had told my wife, Becky, that they would have to remove my right arm. It wasn't, we might be able to save the arm. It was, we're taking the arm. Whoa. But thankfully, the occupational therapist who was in attendance saw that I still had hand function. So she urged them to help me keep the, to tell, you know, not take the arm, but they had, there was such an infection in my right hand. It had gone so deep that it had affected some, an artery. So they took a 15 inch by four inch flap of skin from my left thigh and placed it on my right forearm and hand. And so since I had my thigh on my hand, I call it my thand. (laughs) (laughs) I'm awaiting copyright on that. I I think I'm going to copyright pending. But that left me with a huge gaping hole in my left thigh. I'm a runner. And runners tend to have rather large thighs because of our muscles. And the wound was so big that it could not close naturally. So they had to not only install knobs on either side of the wound in a Jacob's ladder type formation, like a shoelaces inside the wound to tighten it up. They also had to take out my vastus lateralis, which is one of the quad muscles in my left leg. So I have a thand on my right arm and a tri in my left leg. Oh my goodness. So, okay. To go back really quickly though, Chris, before we continue, how is it that they're able to fillet you, as you said, my goodness, what a description, and through all these procedures, stop the bacteria from spreading throughout other parts of your body? Was it a combination of extremely aggressive antibiotics plus these surgical procedures? Or how exactly did they stop it from continuing to spread? Well, they had the antibiotics, but they also used the method of cutting in front of the infection. They treated it like a forest fire. You know how they do a control burn for forest fires? Yeah. They did the same thing for me. So they plotted out where the infection was and they went a little further ahead and that's where they cut. And so that way they can ensure that they captured the entire infection. Wow. And this is over the course of the whole five days or this is just the first day and you were just, you were out in a coma the rest of the four days and nothing else was being done. Like what was the arc of those five days for you? Obviously you don't remember, but, but was it a structured thing where, you know, every single day they did a little bit more or did they all, did they knock it all out on the first day and let you, I use the word arrest as if coma is arrest. Maybe it is. And like, let you be in a coma for the other four days. They spent the first few days, uh, two or three days uh, with the debridement processes. And then they started the skin graft uh, surgeries for the balance of the coma. And so I should mention that with the thand, it was since they were taking a large flap of skin from one part of my body and placing it on another, they had to make sure that blood flow was occurring in that thand. And so they had to hook up, um, hook up a special wound vac 
to make sure that that was, you know, clear and, uh, you know, there's nothing getting in there. And they also had to take a daily heart rate readings. You know, they had to make sure that I was, they're getting a pulse, basically. They're taking a pulse on my right arm to make sure that there was blood flow. And they would do it like very much the same way uh, you would for like an ultrasound. What was your experience waking up from a coma? Like, what was your first thought? What was like, what went through your mind? Like when you woke up from that? Why was I at the bottom of this water slide? And why am I throwing up green liquid? <laughs> Wait, what made you think of a water slide? <laughs> well, there was so much green liquid coming out of me because of the CT fluid they used to take pictures that I thought, I literally thought I was at the bottom of a water slide. Wow. And just the stuff was just, I was covered in it. Oh my gosh. I, I'm sure from the outside observer, I also looked like I was, they were filming Exorcist 4. But I just had this, all the this stuff coming out of me. I was confused. I was angry because I had no idea what was going on. My brother, who had flown in from Muskegon, Michigan, almost left. Because he doesn't like dealing with me when I'm angry, much less angry waking up from a coma. <laughs> so you actually felt angry as in like confused and angry or just uncomfortable anger or what type of anger is it? Just wake up. Why am I throwing up? Why am I in this situation? It, it took me a little while to settle down, but eventually I did. Don't know if I apologize to that nurse I upset. I don't remember. <laughs> and how about your wife? Like, what's going on for her? And how? what was her experience for that five days of you being in a coma? I will be spending the rest of my life trying to make up for that because apparently it was somewhat stressful. I am speaking in a state of understatement. Like I mentioned, my brother had flown in from Michigan to help Becky out with the kids and also to you know, prepare for the worst. Basically at one point I had less than a 30% chance of survival. So, wow. and yeah, why and was that? Because of the, how did they determine that? And how far into that five days were they thinking this? I don't exactly remember when they thought uh, it was 30%. I think it was during the first couple of days, but you know, because the infection had gone basically to the ba base of my neck. And it also was creeping into my chest. You know, they had to take a nipple off. They were in, say, an, a nipple tax. I'm going to save so much money. <laughs> Wait, they had to remove a nipple completely. Yes, I, my chest is constantly blinking <laughs> and winking. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah, so it had gone very deep into, you know, into the middle of my chest and the middle of my back. N not like, I guess not deep in terms of depth inside my body, but, you know, from if you count the outside of your shoulder, be, you know, being the outside, you move inward. You know, it had gone very, very much inward into my body, I guess you would say. Anyway, I mean, it was the right half of my body. I look like, like discount Deadpool, a I look like I could be on The Walking Dead. And so, you know, there were some times where it was just not looking good. She had moments where she cried. You know, my brother as well was uh, crying and they were there to comfort each other. But it, obviously, eventually I was able to make it through 
and wake up, you know, spewing green liquid like you do. And how long was the recovery period from this? And uh, how soon did you get back to running? I guess is my bigger question because, you know, on your website, you have all these photos of you being so active and positive. And, and there's actually a photo of you where I think you were literally running out of the hospital. Was that taken like on that same trip or a separate trip? That was the day I was discharged. I mean, you have like this grin on your face and you're like literally in a running stance right up on your discharge day. So that's really incredible. <laughs> and you Thanks, say here, yeah. like you had this burning desire to kick some butt. You were in a coma for five days, but how long were you actually in the hospital the whole stretch of time? I was in the hospital for 65 days. 65? Yes. So just over nine weeks. And I just a side note before I forget, those running shoes I was wearing, I ordered in the hospital. Wow. As motivation to get back to running. Wow. But yeah, so, you know, after I woke up, I started settling down and, you know, there were still some more surgeries that I had to go under for. Basically, skin graft harvesting surgeries and the like, uh, and a couple of dressing surgeries. The first couple of times they dressed my wounds, they had dressing changes I had to be put under. But eventually... Once my skin graft started to heal, they were doing the dressing changes in my hospital room. And aside from that, they also sent me to another hospital within the Mayo Clinic system for a hyperbaric oxygen treatment, which is where they put you in a big room and they pump pure oxygen into the room and also into the helmet they have you put on that makes you look like Mr. Freeze. <laughs> what is the purpose of saturating you in that kind of hyper-oxygenated environment? What does that do to the healing process for your body? It exacerbates it. It really speeds it up. I guess exacerbates is a, has a negative connotation, but it accelerates the, the healing process. And so that what they would do is they would take me by ambulance from St. Mary's Hospital, which is the name of the hospital I was in, to Methodist Hospital, just a few blocks away. And they wheel me in, they get me checked in, and uh, after a few minutes of waiting and taking uh, taking my name and going through the uh, rigor protocol for you know safety, they would uh, put me, they wheel me into the big room. It was basically the size of a bus. It had two main main sections, with a bathroom in the middle and they had lazy boys all throughout the, the area and two 45 minute sessions. Usually what I would do is I would take a nap because I'm not sure if you know, know of anything about the healing process, but when you almost die and you have been filleted, it takes a lot out of you. And so naps are very nice. I found out. And so that's a great place to nap and uh, slurp down some cranberry juice, which I had a craving for apparently in the hospital. And I did that for 15 sessions. It's interesting to me that I've never done a hyperbaric oxygen. And Whitney and I being such fans of wellness and health and healing, one of the, the big reasons that we do this podcast. But in all kind of like the alternative healing modalities, Whitney, I've actually never done 
an oxygen chamber. Have you? Have you ever done that before? I mean, who hasn't done one, Jason? I'm just Stop. kidding. <laughs> yeah, you really are not. living in the dark ages. Please climb out of your rock, this guy do Join the rest of us. <laughs> you on. call yourself a wellness guru. Actually, you don't. It's not something that has uh, really crossed my mind much. I I haven't even done uh, cryotherapy yet, so I'm I'm a little behind myself. Is it something, Chris? You were motivated to get like a a personal oxygen chamber for the house because I knew they do sell those. There's actually a couple acquaintances of ours that have personal pods, like hyperbaric oxygen pods. So was that something you at all considered? Like we need to get one for the house, or was it just strictly relegated to that that part of your healing process? I think during my one of my hallucinations, I thought about selling my spleen, but not before dipping in pure gold. <laughs> is that how much they are? Just for the added is that, is that how much the it, oxygen chambers are? They're look expensive. Got it. Got yeah. It. But a solid gold spleen will help you get you on your way to having your own oxygen chamber. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how I know this. I just do. It's, well, you know, the, there's a black market on the internet for anything, even gold-plated organs, gold-dipped organs. So there you're you in your rehab process, and when you are actually able to to start moving your body again and your discharge day, what was the process in terms of PT and getting mobility back? And I suppose going from a quadricep to tricep in your leg, what was it like kind of relearning your, your body's obviously different. It's a new body. What was that like for you? Was it frustrating? Was it scary? Were you just fully determined? What was the emotional, not just the physical part of that, but what was the emotional part of that for you with the therapy afterward? Well, I was in physical therapy up until roughly Thanksgiving. What had happened was after I was discharged, I experienced three more weeks of home therapy where a nurse would come to my house. The first 10 days were at my in-law's house. And then my dad drove me back home here to New Ulm. And then I finished out the balance of the days with my home hospital, my home uh, medical center. But the nurses would clean out, would uh, dress the wounds, and then a PT would come by and run me through some exercises. And then after that three weeks, I uh, would either run or drive or bike to the medical center to finish up PT. As I found out, the more warmed up the skin grafts are, the more pliable they are, the more malleable. So they're easier to work out and get more flexibility out of them once I biked or I ran there. At the last day of my home therapy, I signed off on it. The nurse left the driveway And then I ran and grabbed those shoes I ordered from the hospital. I put them on and I ran out the door. I headed to the office of our insurance agent where a friend of mine was working. And she had gone through some health issues as well while I was in Mayo. So I went to see her and I headed back. And I remember this as clear as day. My watch informed me that I had to run a mile and I said fudge, but not fudge. And I gasped for breath thinking I was going to die. I had forgotten I had not run a mile in three months. Wow! Your body will let you know if you have not run a mile in three months, let me tell you. But luckily I was only like a block and a half away from home. I stumbled back home and... Even though I was feeling like utter crap, 
I was thankful to get that first mile under my belt because I needed to do that in order to progress. As they say, the first one is usually the worst one. And it definitely was in my case. What's great? emotions at this point? Are you like, okay, this is just part of the process. Are you feeling frustrated with your body? You're experiencing something, Chris, that, I mean, I wouldn't even know the percentages of the human population that go through something like necrotizing fasciitis, but obviously it's a lot more rare than other maladies we experience as humans. But my question is, yeah, what's your emotional state with this? Are, are you like, oh, God dang it, body. Like, why aren't you doing what I want you to do? Are you feeling maybe a higher level of patience? Like what's going through your mind and your heart through all this? There were exactly two times I cried. Once was in the hospital because of the pain and frustration that I over not being able to sleep because of the pain, because I had, uh, I had recently been uh, pain meds I had been taking had been lowered. So my body was adjusting to that. The second time I cried was when I was at home and it was just a night where I was frustrated with how momentarily hard something was. Other than that, and some momentary moment, you know, some momentary situations where I was feeling a lot of pain and I was growling, I really had nothing but gratitude. And it was because while I was in that coma, people from all over had stepped up to help me and my family out. Friend of my wife's from high school, I believe, set up a GoFundMe account to help out with expenses. And as it turned out, I had run out of sick days at my school. And so that GoFundMe account offset that loss in wages. My colleagues from my online school had stopped by my in-laws to drop off food and toys for my kids. I had all of this love and support coming to me and my family. And it was almost unconscious that if I were to ever get depressed or sad or woe is me, that I would be basically slapping the face of everyone who stepped up to help us. So while there are some times that were tough and sometimes they were difficult, I never really wallowed in it because I had survived. And not only was I surviving, but I was able to get back to doing what I had been able to do before. And many others had not. In fact, the person before me, who had gone into the hospital with NF at Mayo, lost their arm and still died. So it was always a conscious and unconscious effort of mine to be grateful for what I had and try to practice that every chance I got. Right. I think that's one of the most beautiful lessons that you could have for yourself and to share with others. And I'm so grateful for you being that reminder because it's interesting to me how in general, we still struggle to be grateful for things. And for you, Chris, have you always found yourself a really grateful person? And did this experience shape that in a different light for you? Did it like 
make it easier for you to be grateful, harder for you to be grateful? Is it like an ongoing reminder for you to be grateful? Like, how has your relationship with gratitude changed through this, if any? Well, that's a great question. Actually, it has urged me to become a professional speaker. You know, in, in these last five years, I've been improving myself not only physically, but mentally and spiritually. And in the last couple of years, I've been trying to think of ways to share this experience with others because I totally believe that if I had not adopted the attitude of gratitude that I had, that my recovery would not been as as successful as it is. You know, I, I feel I'm still recovering, but it's a lot more it's a lot more gradual than it was in the first year. And so starting in January, I've been reaching out to places to speak to people, especially students and other groups about how and the attitude of gratitude can not only be used to improve, you know, someone's own life, but they in turn can use it to improve others. Absolutely. That actually reminds me of an upcoming episode we have on this show with a woman named Keisha who has muscular dystrophy. And her story is also incredibly inspiring. And after we finished recording that, Jason was reflecting on how she was reminding him to be grateful. And, and maybe you can expound on that a little, Jason, as well. And also, I'm curious too, Jason, for you, you've had sleepless nights over pain as well. So as as Chris was talking about this, I remember that that night where your gout got so bad, like you literally didn't sleep. You just sat in a chair all night and we were traveling. And I just, my heart went out to you, Jason, for spending the whole night just suffering and not knowing what to do. I, I think you were crying a lot too, if I, if I recall, like, and it was really tough to witness that for you, Jason. So I'd love for you to speak on th what that experience taught you and also what you've been learning with your recent challenges with gout again. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting. I've noticed that there's a tendency, I think, for myself and maybe other humans that there's almost an amnesia of what we have survived and, and what we've been through. And with particular health challenges, I think that it's, for me, I suppose the frustration of not being able to figure something out or find a solution and have something that persists for, for years and years and years that you're like, okay, I, I got to figure out this puzzle. I haven't figured it out yet. But, you know, I also feel like pain, boy, pain is almost like a teacher in a way because I've noticed, this was actually a few weeks ago, I noticed that during one of my sleepless nights where, where my foot was in pain, I noticed that there were, this was really interesting psychologically, there were moments that I noticed my foot didn't hurt. It's 3 a.m. and I'm tossing and turning and you know the, the painkillers aren't really working that I'm using. And I remember there were moments that I couldn't feel any pain. And for some reason, something in my brain said, focus on those moments. So it was really interesting. I'd never been able to do this before psychologically, but I was focusing only on the moments where the pain would recede in my foot. And I decided to get really present to those moments. 
And that's been really interesting to notice that, that I've been practicing instead of focusing on the pain, focusing on the moments when I'm pain free. And I think that's a mirror too of, of what we're talking about, Chris, when you bring up gratitude is, especially during this COVID period and this quarantine with you know a lot of the challenges that, that I'm facing, Whitney's facing, a lot of our friends and, and family are facing of, I suppose, financial loss or downturn in our investments or career challenges or there's a myriad number of things that people are facing right now. And I think this gratitude practice is so important during this time to not focus on so much of the pain or the fear or the things that are going wrong, but to focus on, as you said, the blessings and the people that are here to support us. And it's just interesting because it sounds like you've had so much training with this gratitude practice. And I, I guess I'm curious for Chris and you, Whitney, you know, how gratitude's playing a role right now during this really uncertain time of COVID. Whitney, do you want to uh, answer first? It's interesting because it feels hard to answer that in this moment because, frankly, not experiencing a lot of physical challenges like the two of you are describing here. And I, I think it, I want to bring that up and be transparent because sometimes we get into this comparison trap like, oh, well, my situation is not as bad as yours. So who am I to talk about these things? But perhaps the listener is feeling that as well. So I wanted to bring this up about how everything's so relative to us, you know, and that's something that I think we need to keep in mind because if we get into this whole mindset of, well, my situation is better or worse than somebody else. Like I think that can actually affect our ability to feel grateful. And there's a tendency sometimes to either feel inferior in a way for lack of a better word, like, oh, well, I have it easy. So like, I'm just going to pretend that I don't experience anything, any type of challenges. But as we know, and we explore a lot with this podcast, physical pain can be just as hard as or harder than emotional or mental pain and vice versa as well. Like that can be a really big struggle. And so I want to remind the listener that we can learn so much from our individual experiences, but not to discredit our pain, whatever that means for us, just because it seems like somebody has it harder. And so in terms of gratitude for me, I guess I struggle more on like the emotional side of things right now in my life. And I've had a few physical challenges, but again, like I've never had a broken bone before, actually. <laughs> I've sprained my ankle and I had surgery uh, a few times and that's pretty much it so far in my life. And who knows what, what life is going to throw my way over time. But when I think about gratitude, it, it's really helpful in moments where I'm facing anxiety or low feelings or or maybe also catching myself not like being tuned into how wonderful it is that we are alive. You know, your story here, Chris, is a great reminder in that sense that, you know, you at one point you had like a you had a 30% chance of living or a 30% chance of dying. 30% chance of survival. Great. So <laughs> that's like so crazy, you know, like to think that. What was also interesting about that is you weren't even conscious at that time. So that must have been really interesting because, you know, here you are describing how you went into this surgery 
with a positive mindset, so much so that you surprise the surgeon. And then like you were at your closest brush up against death in a way, I imagine, unless you're leaving out another part of your story. But I'm assuming that this is like your the closest you ever got to death, right? But you weren't even conscious to experience that, which is also really interesting. I'm I'm actually fascinated by that. And I don't know, I guess I just haven't had any close calls with death myself. And like just being aware of that helps me feel grateful for that of like looking back over my life and recognizing like I haven't actually struggled that much. And again, it's not like a comparison game. It's more just thinking, I'm just grateful to be alive right now. I'm grateful to be healthy. I'm grateful to be talking to the two of you. I'm grateful to be learning lessons. And sometimes just simply being aware of our privilege and whatever that means for us in our lives is a way to be more grateful versus taking it for granted. So that's part of my point here too, is I don't take for granted my health. I don't take for granted the fact that I haven't had any of these challenges that you two are describing here, but I could easily take it for granted if I wasn't paying close attention to my life. And so that's a long answer to share with you that whenever I'm I'm feeling my struggle relative to my life, simply just paying attention to all of the wonderful gifts I've had in my current state of being and recognizing that similar to what you were saying, Chris, like just the gift of being alive and not being so afraid of death because we can't control it. And even if it doesn't feel like it's looming over us in the time that it did for you, Chris, where you could have never woken up from that coma, you know, and you went in with as little fear as, as you knew how to, to keep away from your mindset. I think each of us could be brushed up against death at any moment. You know, there's all sorts of freak accidents that could happen to us. We have no idea, no control and no timeline. Like we just have to take each breath and moment as a beautiful thing. And having conversations with people like you, Chris, are a reminder to keep being aware of that. And yeah, it's just super interesting to listen to your story here. Oh, well, I greatly appreciate that, Whitney. And so when I think about my gratitude practice, I think about when I started feeling it in the hospital. And it wasn't not like I said, well, I was laying in my in my gurney. All right, I'm going to start being grateful. I just started thinking about all the good things I had. And it wasn't just the big things. It wasn't just, oh, I'm grateful to be alive. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my job and my colleagues. And not that I'm, by the tone of my voice, I hope you don't think I'm discounting any of those. But I think when we talk about being grateful, we think about, oh, the big things. I was thinking about how I enjoyed watching the season, the first season of Daredevil on Netflix. I was thinking about how I enjoyed my first of three protein shakes every morning. By the way, there is such a thing as too many protein shakes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we know it? <laughs> you know, but at the time, I really appreciated them. I made it a practice to think of all the small 
seemingly insignificant things in my life that I appreciated and I liked. Because if I like them, I'm obviously grateful for them. And so I think about the, you know, the way that the light would not shine in my eyes when, you know, as the sun went on its daily travels in the sky, the way that my bed was maneuvered in my room was like, oh, I won't, there's no time in the day where I'm getting blinded because there are sometimes I couldn't move. You know, I'm grateful for the rotations where the, a nurse I really got along with was on and, you know, she would come in and we would chat about things. And so I really try to impress upon people, especially people during my speaking engagements, by looking at the small things in life that you can enjoy, you find that you develop a more intimate sense of gratitude than if you try to look for all the big things. Because sometimes it's the big things that go away a lot faster than the small things do. By looking at the little things you have in your life, you find that, wow, there are actually a lot of things I have to be grateful for. They may not be huge, you know, sports car, million dollar home type of things, but they're still things I like. And when it comes to your own life, your whole sphere of existence is all about what you like and dislike. If you like more things than you dislike, then you're doing pretty well. I really love that, actually. It's such a a lovely way to put things into perspective because I think that we are often kind of programmed to want all these big things all the time. And Jason and I talk a lot about this, like this mentality of what it means to be successful and what it means to be happy. And as I mentioned, this whole idea of comparing our lives to one another can actually be really detrimental. But part of your point, Chris, is is so lovely because you were going through and you have been through something incredibly challenging that I'm sure affects your life on a daily basis. But it was the small things like what shows you liked and what foods you enjoyed that really have made a difference in your life. And I think that we can never hear that enough because we're constantly battling with messages of you're not enough, you don't have enough, you're not good enough, you need more. It's all about like keep striving, striving, striving. And to me, when I hear you talking about that, it's like, I'm grateful for the coffee I get to drink every day. Like I love having my coffee and I look forward to it and it brings me so much joy. And I love watching my favorite show, like you're mentioning, Chris, and those moments of when the movie that you've been waiting to see finally comes out, like all three of us can geek out over the new Star Wars movie when it, well, hopefully we get another good one, but <laughs> like looking back on, what is on this, those moments. I, I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, it, I actually am also grateful for those wonderful memories of seeing one of the Star Wars movies for the very first time and the excitement that I felt in those times I, I shared with someone like Jason of going to the movie theater and just the anticipation, like that still lives in my body. So I can even be grateful for the things that I've experienced in the past. And those things I feel like just don't often get discussed. We kind of move past those things or we could very easily just 
experience it and then it's over. And I enjoy that process of being grateful for those past things just as much as I am grateful in the present and grateful for the anticipation of the future. I love it when after something happens a day later, a week later, a year later, whatever it is, I can still look back and say, wow, wasn't that amazing? I'm so grateful I got to do that. You know, there's, uh, I'm not sure if you, uh, if you know of Brendan Burchard. Yes, we both love Brendan Burchard. Uh, he had a podcast episode recently where he talked about this, like, uh, I can't remember the exact name of the episode, but he talked about the past and mm-hmm. how one part of it is having the step is like you have acceptance of the past and having satisfaction for, you know, that things may not be perfect, but they're good and you're satisfied with what you're doing, but you know, you can do better. And then having nostalgia for the past. And while not everything was perfect, but you think fondly of the things that were good. And by doing that, you can then move forward and have more positivity in your life now. And and so I totally agree. We'll uh, find that episode. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Do you know if that was a new episode of his or a um, one that he was resharing? Well, when you find it, send it to us and we'll put it in the show notes for the listener. And if you have not visited our website before, Everything we're talking about today will be linked for you to easily reference. Our website is wellevator.com. It's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. If you go to the podcast section and find this episode, we'll link to the Brendan Burchard episode. We'll link to other podcast episodes that we've referenced of our own, Chris's podcast. Everything is going to be there along with the transcript of this episode for you to easily go back and find moments that you want to re-listen to or reread or or quote or however you enjoy going through the notes of what you've taken in. Here's my question for both of you, Chris and Whitney, in terms of the specifics or the mechanics of your gratitude practice, have they evolved over time in the sense of some people like to perhaps during their prayer or meditation time each day, go over a list in their mind or give thanks verbally for the things they're grateful for other people like I had a gratitude journal that I kept by the side of my bed. And right before I would go to bed each night, I would write down the five things that I was grateful for and then why I was grateful for them. So I'm curious how that's evolved for both of you over time. And and right now in this moment, what is the framework or the techniques that you have in your personal gratitude practices? Well, actually, for a little while, I was using Brendan Burchard's High Performance Planner, which is lovely. And we'll, we'll link to that too for anyone who really enjoys like journals and planners and and that kind of a nice template that you can use each day. And one of the things that Brendan has in there and really encourages people to do is to reflect on what went well each day. And and the planner is really helpful. Have you used that, Chris? Do you have one of those planners? I actually do. And I started a while ago reusing the pages. Like I went through the entire planner and then I started using a different writing utensil to reuse the pages. Oh, cool. That's actually so, very smart and eco-friendly yeah. too. <laughs> yes. And also, uh, I made copies of the last couple pages. So if I ever wanted to print them out and make my own, I could. So hopefully, Brendan, don't sue me. But uh, yes, short answer, I have used it. And then in terms of you know what you guys are doing, do you incorporate 
meditation, prayer, any kind of verbal gratitude practice? You know, is is it more of a thing that you recite inwardly? I mean, be, be, or is it just the journal, or is there anything that's an addendum to that? Well, since I'm constantly looking for speaking engagements, and I'm actually working on my own uh, program based on gratitude, I'm constantly thinking about, you know, the, the concept. And sometimes when I am working on something, and I'm especially on the on the program or on my speech, I just take a quick uh, assessment. Okay, what do I like around here? And, you know, I think about, I like how my, the earbuds my wife got me quickly connect to my phone and how the little pod they come in charges them up without me having to plug it in. And so I routinely just take account of all the little things I like at a moment's notice. My family and I, we calmly pray at dinner and, you know, other special occasions, but it's just more of a ongoing practice throughout the day, kind of fluid. But when I do use planners that have prompts like that, I definitely use them and try to fill them up as much as I can. I find that conversations like this are really help with me staying aware of things like that because it's so easy to slip into just going through life and going through the motions basically or not taking that moment to pause. I find that yoga is really helpful for me too. I, I see it as a moving meditation and there's so many meditative elements of it and it's all about focusing on yourself for that period of time and working on your physical, emotional, and mental state. And so having a regular yoga practice is helpful. Taking walks can also be a moving meditation. And I listen to a lot of different audio tracks, whether it's music or meditation guides or sounds like binaural beats or certain sound frequencies that you can listen to. Those I'll, I'll actually put on my headphone when I'm working or when I'm reading, when I'm meditating, when I'm sleeping. And those really help me as well because they calm my whole body down and allow me to be more present and like calm, relaxed. And just simply through the process of that, I think it tunes me into that awareness and I can become more present. And that helps me do things like stay grateful. I also find in moments when I'm feeling really tense, if I can breathe through it and use that amazing practice of breath work, then I'll just kind of feel like more joy and positivity. And that will often help me shift. Like sometimes it's like the polarizing effect of feeling really angry about something. Can I shift that into feeling grateful instead? Feeling sad about something, can I shift this into gratitude, right? And just like noticing those intense emotions, oftentimes the opposite or the kind of like solution to them is gratitude. And I think I've just trained myself over time to do my best to get grateful during any moments of struggle. What about you, Jason? I'm going to ping pong it back to you. I know you certainly have some practices. Or do you feel like you've been struggling with this lately? Is that why you bring it up? I feel like it's a combination of both. We talk about the past. When I live too much in the past in terms of being punitive or unkind to myself, and, and this is 
probably still one of the biggest struggles in my life is I tend to beat myself up way too much over things. You know, I'm really, I'm really hard on myself. And when I am being hard on myself and I'm living, say, in past regret of I should have saved more money or I should have, you know, maybe been better about my finances or planning for, I don't know, crazy pandemic or disaster or whatever. You know, I beat myself up over not being more prepared. It's hard to find gratitude in those moments. Or when I try and forecast the future, you know, think about, you know, what am I going to do with, you know, my house and what happens if my money runs out and I project too much fear into the future. It's like if I'm living in regrets of the past or fear of the future, I'm not grateful. But one thing that I've been doing, I guess, to put myself in the present is kind of piggybacking on what, what you were saying, Chris, about the small things, not just the big grandiose things of, you know, my house, my car, my family, my relationship, all that, but bathing in clean water. There are times when I'm in the shower and I've been practicing this recently. And I think to myself, like, my God, I get to bathe in clean water every single day, as many times as I want. And I only take one shower a day. It's not like I'm in there five times a day, but if I wanted to, I could take five showers a day. That's incredible. That's an incredible blessing. The fact that I get to, you know, healthy food every day, that I drink clean water, that I have amazing companion animals and my girlfriend and great friends like Whitney and wonderful new friends like you, Chris, to connect with, you know, those seemingly innocuous things that I could take for granted and have taken for granted when I'm really present to those things, like, wow, I get to shower today. The regrets of the past or the fears of projection to the future, those don't exist in those moments because I'm just feeling so much gratitude. I mean, there are times where I will cry in the shower, not because I'm upset, but just because I'm so happy that I get to clean my body every day. And so those are the moments that I've been practicing more, those simple things you were talking about, Chris, of like, wow, man, I'm in the shower crying because I'm so happy I get to bathe myself. But there's no pain in those moments. There's just just absolute joy and thankfulness for the blessings I already have. Yeah, that's great, Jason. And and just to piggyback of, on what you just said, you know, it's great that you're able to find that joy in something that we could definitely take for granted here in the United States, especially. You know, we think about, oh, well, I need to take a shower today. We never think, well, in some other countries they may have never even seen a shower or had clean water, you know, enough clean water to take one shower like you described where you could do it, you know, every day or five times a day. If that's how you roll, Jason, I'm not here to judge. Just really quick though. Episode 52, how to create happiness from the Brennan Burchard show. It's called the Brennan show. Episode 52, How to Create Happiness. It was uploaded on July 21st. Oh, fantastic. Well, I can't wait to listen to that. And I will link to that in our show notes, which are again at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. We aim to make it easy for you to find everything that we discussed today. So thanks, Chris. Definitely. Yeah, I think for me, Chris, just to kind of loop it back, I lose my sense of gratitude. You know, the one thing that I found difficult, and I'm curious if you have any tips on this as you're creating a course and some lesson plans as you get out and teach this, consistency. I really, (laughs) I've struggled with consistency, you know, is I'll have those moments in the shower or eating a hot meal or hanging out with my dog and whatever those moments are of like, wow, being fully present to the joy in those moments. But, you know, lo and behold, I'll, I'll look at, the numbers in my bank account, or I'll look at, you know, all the projects that were canceled this year, you know, speaking of speaking of speaking, 
Whitney and I had a lot of speaking appearances lined up at conferences and festivals and things like that this year. And I'm, I'm curious in terms of consistency, if there are any practices to kind of stay the course, because I find I sink into the gratitude and the joy. I'll find evidence in my life and create a story that something's wrong or it shouldn't be. And then I lose that gratitude and I lose that joy. So any tips on staying consistent with it or any practices maybe that, that you want to share with us and the listener on how to do that? Certainly. Well, first of all, if you find yourself ruminating on the negative, like for example, those events that were canceled, flip it around. Instead of looking at, oh, I can't go to that event now, think about, okay, this allows me the opportunity to do X. Or, wow, then I don't have to spend that much money on travel. (laughs) I can then go to, you know, I could go with my girlfriend or boyfriend or whomever and do this instead. Or I can work on this project that I've been, that's been rumbling around in my head. And so by turning it toward the positive and think about the other opportunities it affords you, because every yes to one thing is a no to everything else. You can turn those no's that have been thrust upon you and turn them into yeses for something else. For a daily practice, I mean, you could create your own journal. Uh, You can challenge yourself every day to come up with more things to be grateful for. Say if today, hey, I found three things to be grateful for. Let's see if I can find four different things to be grateful for. You know, something I also like to do is thanking people for things they've done for me. I find that if you thank someone and you're specific in explaining why you're thanking them, not only will you make that person's day probably, especially in retail, but you know, thanking someone for the hard work they're doing in retail is definitely appreciated, I've found, for the most part. But also, it makes you feel better because... And this may sound selfish, but you're thinking, hey, I just made that person feel better. I'm a better person for doing that. And then that gives you something else to be appreciative of that. Hey, I just made someone's day. That's a good thing. Yeah, right on. I appreciate you sharing those tips. I do want to talk about one topic that Whitney and I have definitely covered here on the podcast and and want to sink into this with you, Chris. So to loop back to the the origin of this um, before you contracted the necrotizing fasciitis, have you had to work through any sort of residues of fear, right? I'm putting myself in your shoes because I'm, I'm a really empathetic person in that way that I imagine after you scrape yourself on something in your garage, that is there any thoughts that, oh God, you know, I have to be extra careful because if, if I, not just the garage, but if I scrape my hand on a rusty nail or, you know, step on a thumbtack or a piece of glass in the middle of the road, I mean, what you went through was such a a unique and fascinating and harrowing experience. Is there any kind of fear that you have to work through of like, God, I have to be extra careful not to cut myself or hurt myself or step on something? Has that even been a part of your cosmology or, or I guess your process of healing from this? I wouldn't say fear, but my awareness is raised. The kids know that if they ever get a cut or a scrape, dad is the first person they go to. Because, you know, I'm pretty diligent about cleaning it out and making sure that 
it's bandaged up and they're ready to go. I should mention that the reason why I had contracted NF in the first place from that wound was because there was strep in the area and the exact uh, bacteria I had in my body was called uh, group A streptococcus pyrogenes or group A strep. So I know exactly what had happened. That strep had gone into my cut. And so having that knowledge, you know, makes it a lot easier for me to handle things than if it were just like I got a paper cut and my arm blew up. So having that knowledge really um, dissipates the fear. And so I am not someone prone to anxiety or feeling overly fearful about situations. I mean, last week I was, you know, water, you know, I was slalom skiing behind my brother's boat. And next week I'm going to be on a high ropes course, you know, with a friend of mine. I consistently take my students rock climbing every year. I am not someone prone to, you know, fear. I am just a little more aware of cuts when they come by, but I take care of them and I move on. Right on. That's really nice to hear, actually. Because I was wondering the same thing, Jason. I'm really glad that you brought that up and wondering like what your relationship was with your kids and like do you get nervous every time that something happens to them? And, you know, it brings me back to what I was saying towards the beginning about when I got scratched by that cat, you know, it was like, was I a little too nonchalant about it? I mean, I certainly was nervous in that moment. And I hear your story, Chris, and at, for, at towards the beginning, I'm thinking, wow, like this can make us feel so scared. And, and this is actually kind of relatable right now with COVID in a way, because some people feel so afraid to go anywhere or see anybody because it's like, you know, you could just contract COVID at any moment's notice if you just happen to touch the wrong thing at the wrong time. And that's a hard way to live life. And hearing your story in the beginning, it feels so innocent, like, oh, your own home, you scraped up against something. So I'm really glad that you gave us that context of what was going on. I guess it's about finding that balance, though, is you should be careful, but not too careful. You should be you know, you can't live your life fearful all the time. And going back to your point about not being afraid of death, if that's what happened to you, because it's not within your control. And I'm curious, has any of this impacted your relationship with COVID right now? And in terms of there's so much fear around getting sick and all the risks, what have you been thinking about that? And how have you been handling it mentally? I feel that my experience with NF has really set me up for success in dealing with this whole pandemic because I know what it's like to be quarantined. I know what it's like to be sectioned off from my family and kept indoors for weeks at a time. And that mental toughness has really helped me deal with, you know, having to put on a mask to go into a store or having to stay home from an event that I really wanted to do. Because 
there were things I really wanted to do when I was recovering in the hospital, but I couldn't do them. So I thought, okay, well, well, I'll look forward to the next time. And so I feel that while I probably wouldn't want to relive the whole experience of being in the hospital, almost dying and being filleted like a fish. <laughs> I'm happy for the mindset has given me going forward. I love that. And all jokes aside, it, I also feel like you're the type of guy that's like, well, if I have to go through this again, I have to go through this again. And <laughs> I think that's really admirable as well as is you seem to be taking life in stride in a really inspiring way. And it's no surprise that this is turning into a, a motivational speaker career for you. And I, I think that you have a really helpful message to share as that ongoing reminder for others and using yourself as an example and helping people understand that they may not go through what you went through, but they can still learn from your lessons and apply them to their lives. So thank you so much for sharing that with us today. It's been just super interesting. And I, I love the way that you speak about it in a fun way, like you make it less scary. And I think that's really important too, especially for anybody with kids. As I listen to you, as a you're a teacher and a father. And actually, one more question for you, Chris. I'm curious, did you become a teacher as a result of your kind of like childlike wonder that you have? And or is it part of being a parent that shaped that? And lastly, I also think it sounds like you've been teaching online for a long time. So if you have anything to share about online teaching and your perspective about the school system, I'm, I'm curious about that too, because that's ongoing uh, topic of maybe not debate, but like it's a challenging subject matter right now. A lot of people struggling to understand like how to be a good parent during COVID and tough times like this. and deciding what to do and with the school system right now with online teaching or going back in person to classes, anything that you want to share about those subject matters, I'd love to hear. Yeah. So I became a teacher because adults suck. <laughs> when I finally decided that I was going to be a teacher, I told my old band teacher uh, that I had in seventh and eighth grade. And that's exactly what she said. She goes, you know what, Chris, you're going to be a good teacher. And teaching is great because working with the kids is awesome and adults suck. So I always think of that. But I always think that I feel I've always had a really good way of relating to kids. And being a pop culture geek really helps because I actually use Minecraft in my social skills sessions with my students who have you know, like autism and other social skill deficits. I am surrounded by Transformers because my son and I have gotten into Transformers. I was always, I've always been into Transformers, but we he and I have really gotten into it right lately. And so having that fascination with objects of the imagination makes it easy for me to relate to kids. Regarding online teaching, I've been online teaching for, the, I'm coming upon my ninth year. And I have my twins to thank for that because I had been teaching in a school district that was 50 miles away. And at that time, uh, my wife and I had one kid. When we found out that we had twins on the way, I started looking for other jobs. And 
I was really sad because I really liked where I was teaching. But at the same time, I also wanted to live with a happy wife and being gone two hours a day just for the drive alone was not conducive to that. So I eventually found a teaching job in the only public and unionized online school in Minnesota. It's called Minnesota Virtual Academy. And I've been teaching there for eight years, like I said. My outlook on online teaching is a little different than what everyone else is seeing because our curriculum is made for online teaching. We may have occasionally have books that align with the curriculum, but the curriculum is made for online delivery. And we have systems in place that make it optimal for us to teach in this regard. And so I wish I could help out teachers who are, you know, in the traditional setting who have to teach online in terms of curriculum delivery. But I don't know what the curriculum's their curricula looks like. So it's hard for me to really offer some concrete support. I will say though that in order to teach online, you need to be a self-sufficient, structured person. Because if you're someone who depends on other people telling you what to do all the time and people keeping you on the straight and narrow, you are going to struggle. Every day is going to be torturous for you because you're going to have to fight those demons of jumping online to check your social media or doing the laundry or doing dishes you really need to have some self-sufficiency within you and some discipline in order to be a successful online teacher. So if you're someone who struggles with that, I would take this next three, four weeks, depending on what school district you're in, and really work on some ways you could start developing some discipline in that area, at least one area, and then work from there because it's tough not having someone to you know to keep an eye on you and keep tabs on you when you're at home and especially with your kids kids are a distraction if it weren't for kids teaching would be so easy <laughs> but man they they kind of make it worth it though it sounds like you were so prepared for this work at home stay at home quarantine period chris it it reminds me of one of my favorite villains Bane, where you're like, you saw the quarantine, you're like, I was born in this, molded by it. <laughs> like, you know, oh, you came into it, I was born and raised in it. <laughs> you're my role now, Bruce. Yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, I've been doing this for years, y'all. I got this. I got this on lock. Yeah. That's great. It's just so wonderful, Chris, because you're a walking example and embodiment of resilience and acceptance and faith and accountability. I mean, just so many life lessons you shared with us today. And as Whitney mentioned, you have such a light heart. You have such a joyful nature about you. You know, you're you're obviously a grown man who has survived a lot and continues to thrive, but you also have the inner child very much alive in you. And I think that that's a really rare thing, you know, to go through life and not let life beat the joy and the childlike nature out of your soul. And, and you have that in spades, man, which is so wonderful. 
Well, I appreciate that, Jason. I try to exude that every day, even on the days where I don't feel 100%, whether I've got a sinus thing going on, which I feel like I still do. I had one a couple weeks ago. But, you know, I feel that I have been given a purpose and I have been given a mission and a message. And it's my obligation to share it with as many people as I can because I am blessed and I am fortunate. And it's my honor to share that message. Beautiful. And and to the listener, if you've been with us the entire time, thank you for really just digging deep with us as we got to know Chris and his story and, and everything that he has gone through and everything he's offering to the world. To that end, if you want to invite Chris to speak at your upcoming event or for the time being online event, we're going to have Chris's contact information, his website, all of his social media handles in the show notes for this episode at wellevator.com. Again, our website is W-E-L-L evatr.com or you can go direct to our podcast site which is podcast.wellevator.com you'll find all of the links to the books the things that we've referenced today anything for you to take your education and your knowledge even deeper beyond this episode and to dig into chris's great work his story of what he has gone through and survived and his outlook on life and again to dig into his podcast and more of his teachings in the world We will have all of that for you in the show notes. So again, Chris, we're just so deeply grateful for your presence, your joyfulness, your beautiful spirit. And uh, thanks for getting uncomfortable with us here. Well, I don't know if it was uncomfortable for you. Maybe it was more uncomfortable for us. I don't know. Maybe you were totally comfortable the whole time. I kind of got the sense that he was. Yeah, sitting back, sipping uh, Darjeeling while uh, (laughs) eating grapes, getting fanned on by palm fronds. You know, it was a dream. Go ahead. I thought of one question we didn't ask you, which was, what does the DT in your name stand for? I was thinking of coming up with something witty and sardonic, but I'll just tell you that it stands for darn terrific. (laughs) It stands for Daniel Thomas because I was doing a Google search for Chris Gordon as I was starting on the speaking journey, and I found... I am not the only Chris Gordon out there. Stop. In fact, there is more than... I know, right? There are lots of them out there. And my parents didn't want me to become an assassin and gave me just three names. They gave me four. So I would use the two middle names to differentiate myself from everyone else. It's excellent. I thought it was going to be like, instead of the Dark Knight, like Chris dark trainer gordon i don't know some kind of superhero thing but maybe there's some acronym in there yeah donatello the donatello turtle my favorite was michelangelo but you know because he was the party dude but as i've gotten older i've realized that leonardo and donatello and Raphael also had their merits they did i'm more of a raft guy actually you You know because the turtles are actually parodies of the x-men and daredevil oh i didn't know that you think of it Leo was like Cyclops, Raph was like Wolverine, Mikey is like Iceman, and Donnie is like Beast. Whoa. Whoa. And then, if you think about, from the Daredevil point of view, who is their mentor? Well, their mentor is Spl- uh, Splinter. Yeah, Daredevil's mentor was Stick. Oh, how interesting. And he fought the, and Daredevil fought the hand, who did the turtles they fight? fought the Shredder. <laughs> And the what clan? Oh, God. Uh, help me, Chris. I think not the hand, but the... The fist? The... 
foot. The foot. The foot. The foot. The foot. The foot. <laughs> the foot plan. <laughs> um, okay, what about April? Oh, yeah. She's there. <laughs> I think she was the stand-in for Jean Grey. Oh. Because they're both redheads. Oh, okay. At least that. But it was more along the lines that Eastman and Laird saw, you know, this is in 1984. And the X-Men and Daredevil were everything. You know, Frank Miller was on his huge Daredevil run. And Chris Claremont and, you know, was having his epic X-Men runs. And so they decided to capitalize on that by turning it a little bit and turning him into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This is like meta deep down the well geekery. I love it, Chris, because I've never thought this comparison before. And now you've given me even more food for thought to munch on after this episode. Right? And speaking of munching, how do you explain their obsession with pizza? Toys, because they actually drank beer in the, in the original comics. In fact, there's one scene in the original run where Raph asks for beer when they visit April's apartment. And so they drank beer. But when the cartoon came out, obviously they can't have teenage turtles drinking beer for a cartoon aimed at eight-year-olds. So not only did they make them like pizza, because also uh, pizza, it can be, uh, you know, monetized, Pizza Hut. But they also color-coded the turtles. In the original comic which was first black and white, but when they colorized them, all the turtles' bandanas were red. Oh, interesting. Did not know this. It's only during the uh, cartoon where they decided to give them different colors. Fascinating. Okay, and lastly, how do you feel about the live-action versions? Because there's the one from, what was it, the 80s or 90s? When did 90s. Early 90s, which I think... We all probably share some nostalgia for that, especially when Vanilla Ice was. Uh, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I have cast that away from my memory. I do not like that. <laughs> Why? Partially because, well, first of all, that song is horrid. Oh, Ninja. Ninja. Also, rap. Oh. When I was little, I guess it all depends how old you were at the time, but. I look back fondly on that song. I'm not saying it was a great song, but it was a fond memory. But if you remember, in the second movie, they never used their weapons. Enough parent groups got all upset because they were using swords and sticks that they couldn't use their weapons in the, in the second movie. Oh, they did a newer version with like, who was the, was it Megan Fox? Was she Megan Fox as April O'Neil? I have never watched those. Neither have I. I treat them as the new Transformer movies. I will never watch those. (laughs) Dude, you know what? It's an unpopular opinion, but I got to say, I'm so OG with the Transformers that I have not enjoyed the new Michael Bay series. of I have not enjoyed it. So I'm right there with you on that. No. I have heard, though, that Bumblebee is really good. And seeing the trailers, they go back to the, not from Bumblebee so much, but they go back to the Generation 1 design for Optimus. And so I do want to watch that eventually. But yeah, I will never, I would never forgive myself as a parent if I willingly showed my children those movies. (laughs) You're a good man, Chris. You're a good man. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 